0: I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Marcus Gibson, back with us in studio this time. Marcus is the director of the Princeton Initiative in Catholic Thought. After graduating from Duke University with a bachelor's in philosophy and ancient Greek, he completed a master's and Ph.D. at the program in classical philosophy in the Department of Philosophy at Princeton University. His current research focuses on the roles of reason and passion in human life at its best in the writings of Aristotle and of Thomas Aquinas. He has taught courses in ancient philosophy and Catholic thought at both Rutgers University and Princeton University. This semester, he is teaching a freshman seminar on happiness and human nature in Catholic thought. He is a former visiting fellow at the James Madison program and the star of this continuing series on the Select Platonic Dialogues.
1: Marcus Gibson, welcome back to Madison's Notes. Thanks, Nino. Always good to be here and a joy to be with you to talk about the symposium today.
0: Well, today, as you just gave away, we have a daunting task, which is in the span of about 45 minutes, we are going to cover the entirety of the symposium. So let's get started. And let's start with the setting. First, in the historical sense. What do we know about where this dialogue fits chronologically in the Platonic corpus? And then second, the substance of the dialogue, the event that is being described, the symposium. When does this event take place?
1: So... um a word about the symposium as a dialogue in Plato's work. It's usually um, labeled as one of those middle dialogues where we see ideas about the forms uh, being explored in, in sort of the, the classical platonic sense we've discussed in, in earlier sessions. Um, and, and discussion also of the soul in terms of, of love and sort of the passion and the longing of the soul and the role that that plays in whether the soul uh, succeeds in pursuing virtue and wisdom or, or falls short of that in some way. Um, as for the chronological, the dramatic setting, um, it takes place, you know, at a time in which Socrates is already a mature figure on the Athenian scene, known for his practice of philosophy in that idiosyncratic way that we've discussed before, and um, also well-known, as as Alcibiades recounts towards the end of the dialogue, for his uh, contributions in the Peloponnesian War as well. More specifically, it also takes place on the occasion of uh, an up-and-coming tragedian, uh, Agathon, one of the – what come to be known as the new tragedy, um, one of the participants in that movement, uh, his first tragic victory at, mm-hmm. uh, at a festival and celebrating the god Dionysius uh, where tragic uh, – drama was was performed. So the immediate setting is celebration, a drinking party and celebration of Agathon's uh, great victory and the conversations that take place um, during that drinking party.
0: Yeah. And we are not getting an account of this symposium firsthand or even secondhand uh, can you tell us a little bit about the narrative framing of this dialogue?
1: Yes. Uh, I'll back up uh, for a second and just talk more generally about what makes the symposium so unique sure. in terms of style. Um, there are two things. One is the dramatic frame, uh, which you mentioned and which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, the other unique feature is is the shape of the meat of this dialogue. Um, as we've talked before – Uh, Many Platonic dialogues take the form of of shorter conversations, usually one interlocutor and Socrates on some philosophical question. And there are many dialogues that take the form of more extended discussions where one speaker dominates uh, the whole thing and presents a more elaborate philosophical view. This dialogue is very interesting and sits somewhere in the middle in that Mm -hmm. um, there's no single major speaker. We have a series of, of longer speeches some kind of classic philosophical back and forth in Socrates' style. uh, But the dialogue is dominated by these longer speeches um, on the philosophical topic of the day, which in this case is the nature of love, the nature of eros. Um, Then there's also this frame. Uh, We are not reported the dialogue directly. For instance, in the Republic, when Socrates famously begins, uh, I went down yesterday. Instead, we're given... We're uh, given a report of a report, if you like. So uh, a man says, I'm not unprepared to share with you what I learned from another speaker who in turn um, was present at this dialogue. And so we have this multi-layered distancing uh, between the philosophical content and, and the reader's experience yeah. of the content. And there are interesting questions about exactly what Plato's up to when he frames things in that way, yeah, which right. we can and we will, maybe explore. Yeah, we will absolutely
0: yeah. get to a discussion of that. But first – and this is where listeners will begin to realize just how monstrous this undertaking is. Could you give us a brief overview of these first speeches leading up to Socrates? Sure. What do these men have to say about love?
1: Yeah, so the occasion is um, – is this. They're really tired from the previous day's drinking and celebrating. So they've decided to take it easy, not go hard today, send away uh, the flute girls and, and discuss the nature of love, have a kind of more uh, lofty philosophical or sophisticated uh, uh, conversation. So they're talking about the nature of love. And we get these different takes from different Athenian figures uh, on the nature of love, each of them, if you like, um, depicting a different element in the um, the high culture of Plato's day. Um, so we have Phaedrus, Pausanias, Eryximachus, Aristophanes, and then Agathon and Socrates. Let me say a little bit about the different pictures we get in their speeches. So Phaedrus gives us um, an account of love and its place in human life. So they're all praising Eros. They're praising love, which draws mainly on myth and looks to the way that Eros practiced well leads to virtue Mm -hmm. and and to an honorable way of life that contributes to the political community. Uh, Pausanias, in a similar vein, is also focused on the political good that Eros brings rightly practiced. But he draws on the way that different city-states practice Eros, practice um, erotic love. And he draws also on a distinction between a more vulgar, or as he, as the Greek puts it, pandemic love, a love that belongs to the whole people, the whole demos, and a loftier, noble, heavenly love. Mm. Um, he's actually exploiting the fact that Greek myth gives us two different genealogies for Aphrodite, two different, um, two different origin stories for Aphrodite, if you like, in drawing that distinction. And so he, of course, wants to put the lower form of love in its place, which is more uh, focused on and and, um, fixated on on bodily satisfaction. And then he wants to valorize and praise this loftier, more refined kind of erotic love. Um, Moving right along then, uh, there's this fun moment where Aristophanes is uh, set up to go next and – very famously, he gets a case of the hiccups, oh. so he has to uh, bow out for a moment and recover himself. Symachus takes his place. uh, who's a doctor, a physician, gives him a little cure for the hiccups. He gives him some advice for Aristophanes to take uh, while Eryximachus takes his place. Um, incidentally, Ereximachus' name means something like belch battler, which is about <laughs> the, the happiest coincidence we can, we can imagine. Yeah. Um, and Ereximachus... Gives us, uh, you know, as a physician, as a student of nature, he gives us a story about love in a more cosmic frame, which looks back to this tradition of cosmological speculation, uh, which was the bread and butter of philosophy up to Socrates' decisive. Uh, influence on, on the further trajectory of, of Greek philosophy. Um, so he, he speaks of Eros as this kind of binding universal force which gathers the elements of the cosmos together and, and leads them to harmony um, among themselves. And so this looks not just to the case of human relations and and sort of a, a human being internally in body and soul. Um, it also looks to, you know, the music of the spheres and the pattern of the seasons and the, and the, the wider context in which... Um, human love ought to be understood on this vision. Then we finally get to Aristophanes. Before we turn to Aristophanes, though, can
0: we just dwell in a moment on the significance or maybe what Plato is trying to say to us that when the physician is speaking, when Ereximachus is speaking, Aristophanes is in the background, gurgling, hiccuping,
1: sneezing. What should we draw from that? What should our takeaway be? So one um, read of that particular dramatic detail that I've come across and, and which i um, you know I, gives me something to think about is that Aristophanes gets the hiccups because he's had too much of something, as the text puts it hmm. he's either had too much to eat or had, had too much of something and and one possibility which I've come across is that this is uh, Aristophanes having had too much of. Lousy speeches. <laughs> so he's he's sitting there while Eric Simicus is going on. First, he's sort of been holding his breath or just sitting there throughout the earlier speeches and and kind of um, kind of sick of the whole thing or or just bearing it, uh, grinning and bearing it. And then as Eric Simicus is giving this kind of lofty, very cosmic story, there our comic uh, our comic dramatist is is there, gurgling in the background, giving us this kind of hilarious contrast between um, this kind of high minded. Uh, almost Polonius-like, uh, you know, uh, uh, aphoristic or, or platitudinous uh, picture. And Aristophanes, who uh, who's <laughs> sick of the whole yeah. thing and trying to, doing his best to recover from it all. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then he does recover. And what does he have to say?
1: He gives us uh, a story about love, a speech about love that's a story about love, um, which is both hilarious and I think carries uh, something poignant about it. He gives us a kind of origin story about love, an origin myth. Um, I've always been reminded of of the, of the story of the Tower of Babel when I come to this, and maybe we can talk a bit about that in a second. But um, in essence, he envisions each human being as one half of a greater whole, so that in the primeval age, if you like, um, each human being had forearms and four legs was this spherical body with two heads that rolled around to get around and you know, was capable of all these mighty feats, as Aristophanes puts it, despite the hilarious imagery. Um, and in their great strength and hubris, they, they make an attempt on the gods. They, they try to scale Olympus, as we see in, in uh, earlier uh, Greek myths, and, and, um, and take the place of the gods. And as a result of this, Zeus Zeus punishes them for their hubris. He splits them in half so that they might never attempt such a thing again in such great strength. Um, he turns each head of the half towards the wound, so we're we're meant to envision our bellies as the place where we were severed. Um, and that wound is tied up, and the um, the um, the belly button and the umbilical cord is the remnant of that place where Apollo tied us back together. As you can see from all these details, and I see you smiling. These are these are hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, images. Um, but underlying uh, that more basic idea that we are halves of a greater whole is, is this idea that um, that we were made to be part of something more, um, that, that the experience of love or of erotic longing is this hallmark of our incompleteness and our desire to be whole. Whether that takes the form of finding your other half as, as Aristophanes is putting it in this myth um, or at a more general level kind of finding what your erotic longing is ultimately pointing you towards and and finding the wholeness and the integrity that that erotic longing makes possible.
0: So as you and I were discussing before, there's a certain sense in which Aristophanes does seem to be making a fairly profound point, this desire to be made whole. But there's another way in which Plato seems to be skewering this vision of love that to us, to modern readers, is probably the most familiar, find your other half, find your better half. What do you think Plato's doing there?
1: Why is he mocking that idea? He seems not to think very much of it. There's at one level, I think he's just mocking the idea that um, any particular human other can be adequate to mm-hmm. our erotic longings and so that it's kind of a, a silly mistake to think that you'll be complete if you just find that one other special someone. Um, and that links up to kind of a bigger theme in the dialogue about um, sort of getting confused about what our erotic longings are really about, which maybe we can discuss later. Um, but yes, at, the, at that kind of very basic level, I think Plato's just uh, ribbing this idea that um, that happiness and the fulfillment of our longings is as simple a matter as just finding that one special someone. Mm. Um, there's a place for, for that, but but that's not going to be. Kind of our ultimate fulfillment for plato so aristophanes speaks the comic poet and he's followed
0: by agathon the tragedian the tragic poet what does agathon have to say
1: agathon gives us a very finely wrought uh, very flowery rhetorically embellished very very tragic um in the sense of uh, by a tragedian picture of of eros as beautiful, as having all that's good in life, as being delicate and refined, possessing every virtue. Um, But it's underneath all that rhetorical embellishment, there's philosophical inadequacy, which Socrates goes on to expose. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm struck when I read Agathon, especially of an idea I've found in the literature that um, each of these speakers on Eros can't help but Liken, in their praise of Eros, can't help but liken Eros to whatever it is that they've committed themselves to, whether Mm. it's pederasty, whether it's uh, tragic drama, whether it's comedy and myth. Uh, In any case, each of these speakers gravitates, knowingly or not, towards praising Eros by likening Eros to themselves. Mm. Um, And again, to foreshadow, that finds its climax in the great comparison we have between Socrates as philosopher and, and Eros. So Agathon
0: speaks and we finally get to Socrates and he seems hesitant to deliver a speech. He doesn't seem hesitant. He is hesitant to deliver a speech and would rather engage Agathon in a conversation. Finally, he agrees to speak. And what
1: does what does Socrates say? So here's our, our one bit, as I said before, of Socratic back and forth, of yeah. Lencus, of philosophical cross-examination. Um, and the core of this exchange is just to expose the following flaw in Agathon's presentation. Agathon, like I just said, um, depicts Eros as beautiful and good and possessing every virtue. But Socrates has Agathon recognize that uh, Eros is a kind of longing or desire. And he gets Agathon to agree longing is by nature for something that you lack. Mm. You can't long for what you have. Mm. Right, and so by that line of reasoning, if Eros and everyone seems to agree, Eros really is a longing for what's good and beautiful. Eros himself, to switch into mythic mode, the figure of Eros can't himself be the fullness of goodness and beauty. He has to be the one who most of all longs for goodness and beauty, mm-hmm. and that's where um, he catches Agathon.
0: And then once he actually turns to speak in his speech he invents a character or at least seems to invent a character Diotima. what does Diotima have to say in socrates
1: through her yes um so notice we are at yet one further remove yeah, right. right that yeah. we have the frame we have the reported speeches and then we have the report of the reported speech namely socrates being reported as reporting diatema's exactly
0: speech. so let me so let me add that wrinkle to the question uh, what does Diotima say and what does Socrates say through Diotima, and why does Socrates go to such
1: great lengths to keep some distance from it? Yes, um, we're, we're sort of overhearing this very distant conversation. Um, I'll bring in at this point the detail that um, Diotima is reported to be a seer or a prophetess. Um, Uh, The most famous example that that most readers and and listeners might know is, of course, the Pythian Oracle, the Oracle who famously delivered the the mixed blessing, the news that Socrates is the wisest Athenian, right? Um, And that also links up with with this further fact, which is that Plato does indeed often have Socrates bring in these tropes of of religious mystery, of of mystery cult, or of prophetic speech – and of um, sort of divine message uh, at these kind of high points in philosophical conversation. So whether it's the apology and Socrates, the image of himself that Socrates pr- um, presents there, or whether it's here, or whether it's in the Meno, the famous doctrine of recollection mm-hmm. as a way of understanding the possibility of truth seeking. Um, this this does there's a pattern where where Plato has Socrates resort to these tropes, um, and it seems to me we at least ought to take these tropes seriously. We ought to take seriously the idea that um, for Plato and for Plato's Socrates, uh, when you press these philosophical lines of inquiry long enough, you, you come to this divine realm, if you mm-hmm. like, a divine realm that's associated in these middle dialogues especially with, with the forms, with, with the true beings. In this case, of course, with, with uh, the form of the beautiful mm-hmm. um, as Diotima speaks um, in, in a short moment. I'll just say one more thing at this point about why uh, it's presented to us this way, the, these messages about who eros really is, what, what erotic longing really is, and, and what its relationship to the beautiful is. Um, we have these, these nested layers of reported speech, and it sort of resembles the way that in a, in a temple you might have courts within courts. and mm. in the mi- midst of that temple you have the sanctuary or the holy of holies, if you like. Um, so there's this element of um, of removal or of or of distance between the casual listener and mm. and the heart of the philosophical meat if you like, uh, which I think is not meant to discourage the reader, but which I think is meant to prompt the reader to seek more vigorously, more studiously, to long more ardently for. Uh, for the philosophical import of what's being discussed.
0: Yeah. Part of what we get from Socrates' speech is this idea of the ladder of love. At least that's what we call it. What is this ladder of love and why is it significant?
1: Yeah. So that's one of the two major takeaways I think Diotima gives us in Socrates' story, um, the ladder of love. Uh, We're invited to see the person who has erotic longing, And at some level, the Diotima tells us all us human beings have erotic longings. Uh, But rightly pursued, if that pursuit that erotic longing puts us on um, is carried through well, that's going to lead us through a sequence of different kinds of beauty. After all, erotic longing is is for beauty, um, as everyone at the symposium agrees. But... uh, if that pursuit is carried through, that takes us first through beautiful bodies, one particular beautiful body at first. Sort of the classic dawn of eros in the soul is always an encounter with a particular embodied other on this picture. But that takes us from one particular body to beautiful bodies more generally, to beautiful souls, to beautiful laws and institutions, to the wisdom and knowledge that creates those institutions and laws, and then finally to uh, the source of that wisdom and knowledge, the object of that wisdom of, and knowledge, which Diatima presents to us as beauty itself, as if you like, the form of the beautiful, as it's often spoken of. Um, I'll say one more thing at this point. Often this has been read as, um, as a ladder in the strict sense where after you climb one step, you leave it behind. Mm-hmm. so that um, the the successful lover, the lover of beauty itself, is seen as leaving behind each of the f- lower steps of the ladder. You leave behind a particular body. You leave behind bodies more generally. You leave behind human souls more generally as the object of your love until you're finally wrapped in attention only uh, with the form of the beautiful. Um, that's not the only reading. Uh, I favor another reading on which what we have is not so much steps left behind as wider and wider perspectives so that the person doesn't abandon these lower kinds of beauty but comes to see them for what they really are and therefore what this beauty really is and and how to relate to it well Mm. as the effect of or as flowing from these higher forms of beauty.
0: It seems like one of the trademarks of these dialogues is that there is a refutation. Socrates successfully refutes someone Uh, Do we see that here? It's not as explicit, it doesn't seem. We don't see him explicitly refuting the previous speakers. Does he, in a more subtle way, because it is a speech and not a dialogue, or is this just a different sort of dialogue, you think?
1: Yeah. So our one case of catching someone in consistency is the point I mentioned earlier in the conversation with Agathon, where Agathon is made to see that, um, Mm. that beauty excuse me, that Eros can't itself be beautiful yeah. because it's, uh, it's, it's this involves this felt lack of beauty. Um, but still, uh, it seems to me, in a more general way, uh, Socrates' speech shows where the earlier speeches fall short. Mm. Um, it seems to me like we're at least invited to see that um, while these earlier speeches might be getting some things about Eros right, about um, the good effects that Eros rightly practiced can bring about, for us and, and for our political communities, um, they're missing out on this link between Eros as a felt lack and as a longing for what's beautiful and this pursuit of this kind of ultimate form of beauty and this kind of knowledge of beautiful things that it brings, the knowledge of what accounts for, what makes for the beauty in our experience, um, which itself is the richest form of of encounter with beauty on the picture that Diotima gives us. Yeah. So
0: Socrates finishes speaking and inbarges the notorious Alcibiades. And in the words of Seth Benardetti, it is he, Alcibiades, who disrupts the party, forces it to become a symposium and completes the series of erotic speeches with a praise of Socrates. Marcus, can you say a word about who Alcibiades was. We we haven't discussed him yet on this podcast in much length. And
1: then what does he have to say at this party,
0: now a symposium?
1: Sure, yeah. So Alcibiades was certainly the golden boy of his day uh, in Athenian politics and high culture. Um, He came from one of the most promising Athenian families. He had everything lined up for him um, in terms of his natural endowment and political prospects. Uh, and this is exactly what brings him, it seems, to Socrates' attentions. And Socrates seems to have actively sought uh, such promising Athenian young men to awaken them to uh, the need to pursue wisdom and virtue for the sake of happiness, both individual and, and political happiness, uh, the, the happiness of the, of the polis. And very famously, although Socrates and Alcibiades do... Um, do spend time together, and Socrates does. It seems make attempts to bring Alcibiades on board to the pursuit of wisdom as Socrates envisions it. Um, this this goes horribly, badly in the end, as Alcibiades gets embroiled in a in a series of uh, political and uh, political and military disgraces. Um, finds himself switching sides variously and 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 rather. Um, we might even think manically during the Peloponnesian War uh, and ends in disgrace having betrayed Athens, Sparta and, and even Persia at various <laughs> points, um, ends up assassinated while on the run. Yeah. So this brings great disgrace, of course, to Athens and, and it's a horrible end for this uh, young man who seemed so promising both politically and in Socrates' eyes uh, philosophically. And we readers – centuries later, and also given kind of the dramatic distancing of when the dialogue takes place, we see um, that what goes on in the dialogue, including Alcibiades' words, should be read in light of, of what comes after. Mm. So Alcibiades comes in, again, I want to emphasize this,
0: rip-roaring drunk, yes, half naked. Uh, they've all been giving these speeches on love, and he speaks. Not quite in praise of love, but maybe in a, in a certain sense, which we'll get to. but what what does he say? What does Alcibiades say?
1: Well, uh Alcibiades' speech, and again, he's fresh from an actual symposium yeah. where they were going hard, and he it seems like he wants uh, everyone at this party to go hard too. Um, he gives a speech in in praise of socrates he give He reports his own encounter with socrates with with Socrates the man, in all his particularity. Um, and what we get here, I think. Well, first, let me begin this way. Um, He recounts his own, how he first came to Socrates and how, although Alcibiades um, had all the features of a good Athenian beloved, the kind of, just the right kind of guy to have erotic longing for, in those Socratic conversations that he had with Socrates, as Socrates exposed his own um, lack of wisdom and lack of knowledge um, in that classic Socratic way, Alcibiades found himself wrapped with and, and going numb for and longing longing for Socrates, kind of, a kind of uh, uh, awakening of erotic desire in just the way that, that the dialogue has been discussing up to this point. But, of course, the roles are comically reversed. It's Socrates, the older man, the veteran, um, who's the object of Alcibiades' erotic attentions. Um, and here I'll, I'll shift modes from reporting uh, the narrative to, to trying to make sense of it. Um, it seems to me like what we're seeing here is Socrates' past attempts to get Alcibiades to recognize his lack of knowledge about what's genuinely true and good and beautiful. And as this happens, as Alcibiades has those classic experiences of aporia, of realizing that he doesn't know, um, Alcibiades doesn't understand. He misunderstands what he's experiencing, and instead of recognizing that that lack, that felt absence, points to wisdom and the form of the beautiful, um, he takes it to be pointing to Socrates himself. Mm. Socrates, as it were, the finger pointing at the moon, and Alcibiades looks to the finger instead yeah. of instead of at the moon. Um, this ties in with a couple of other moments uh, earlier in the dialogue. One is a detail I don't think I've mentioned yet, which is that earlier, Socrates, rather remarkably, claims that all he knows about is erotics, which is a pretty straight gloss of erotica, so the things having to do with eros, or the practice of erotic matters, or um, maybe even the art of eros. Um, this is very striking because mm. famously Socrates in the Apology claims only to know that he lacks knowledge. Um, then there's also Diotima's character sketch of who eros um, the spirit or the daimon of Eros, who he is. Um, caught between uh, penury and plenty, if yeah. we can put it that way. Caught between total lack of beauty and the full possession of beauty. So that uh, Eros, this spirit, this daimon, is always longing for beauty, always pursuing beauty. Very resourceful because he comes from plenty. He comes from resource. Um, poros is the Greek there. Um, but lacking beauty and so always on the hunt, al- always seeking after beauty. There too, there, there's lots of uh, textual detail that shows us um, a very close likeness between Eros um, as the one who is always on the road to beauty, always caught between ugliness and beauty on the one hand, and Socrates as he presents himself in the Apology, for example, who's mm-hmm. always caught between ignorance and, and truth or ignorance and wisdom rather. Um, so that he, too, is this hunter, he too is the one who's always um, in the quest, in the quest for for wisdom. All of these details, and then to bring it back to Alcibiades, show us Socrates as the one who is um, the consummate erotic or the or the exemplar of the erotic, in this particular sense that Plato is uh, presenting to us this this recognition, this felt absence of the beautiful of wisdom or the truth, um, which sets itself then on the hunt in pursuit of true beauty and pursuit of of wisdom, which is just the philosophical craft as, as practiced by Socrates.
0: Mm. One other thing we learned from Alcibiades in his speech is that Socrates never gets drunk. Is that, you know, He physically gets drunk, right? I mean, as they say, he drinks everyone under the table. If you gave him a BAC test, he would not be allowed to get behind – he would not be allowed in a chariot. <laughs> He's incredibly courageous. He appears not to care about the cold or for standing or standing for hours on end. In short, he exhibits remarkable physical
1: self-discipline. W- what explains these physical traits of Socrates? Yes. Um, Socrates is definitely being portrayed as a prodigious, almost heroic figure yeah. here. Um, and that's definitely part of the picture. Um Another bit of context is that a lot of this stuff is um, how, for example, Heracles would get depicted in satyr plays or, or in, in comedy. We also have these tropes of uh, you know, Heracles or another figure who can drink everybody else under the table. He drinks the wine unmixed, which is, is not the practice because uh, Greek wine uh, without mixture would have been far stronger than, than what we usually think of. Um, so he drinks straight from the mixing bowl, straight, uh, bowl straight up without, without mixing, and yet he never gets drunk. Um, and he's capable of all of these other remarkable feats, um, which, again, some of which are, seem to be um, drawing on or alluding to satyr plays mm-hmm. and, and these sorts of other um, dramatic elements. So there's definitely that going, going on here. And, uh, and Alcibiades also likens uh, Socrates directly to... A statue of Silenus, a statue of of this right. satyr figure, um, and so some of it I think also connects to that. Socrates is this prodigious figure he's this figure out of of um, out of myth almost um, capable of these feats that are somewhat Heraclean yeah. in character, um, and he also has this satiric dimension he's got the satiric ugliness um, but as even Alcibiades recognizes. Uh, it seems like those outward features are hiding something within. Mm -hmm. There's this moment where, again, with the idea of um, the statue of Silenus, um, if you open up the ugly statue, what you find inside are golden little statues of the gods. Um, Now, this points first to the idea that Socrates, those outward features of his do point to this kind of contact with uh, what's ultimately worthwhile, with wisdom, And with uh, what's truly beautiful. But then I think we're also meant to see that Alcibiades is making a mistake. He thinks the little golden statues of the gods are really in Socrates. He thinks that Socrates has those ultimately beautiful things Mm. inside him somehow. But that's a mistaking of Socrates' own erotic longing for the object of all erotic longing, if I can put it that way. What he's feeling is just Socrates' own developed desire for wisdom and beauty and mistaking it maybe because of its maturity, maybe just because of the way Socrates practices it with such, uh, with such finesse. He's mistaking it for the object rather than for a mature uh, depiction of what it looks like to seek those objects, to seek wisdom and virtue. Yeah.
0: One of the themes in the dialogue is the relationship between eros, love, and immortality. What should we take away from that? What is the relationship between the two?
1: Well, we begin with uh, the way that Socrates corrects for what Agathon originally said, that um, that eros itself is beautiful. Uh, Socrates has Agathon recognize that um, when you long for something – It can't be the case that you've already got what you long for. You're longing for it. Um, And so what Socrates allows is the idea that if you're longing for something you have, what you're really doing is not longing for it to come into your possession, but longing for that union with your beloved to last. And so he's pushing towards this idea that built into longing, built into eros, um, is a desire to be united with your beloved forever, Mm. uh, whatever that beloved might be. Um, That sows the seeds, it plants the seeds for this vision that Diotima gives us, where if you climb that ladder of love or you know, if you allow your love to pull out to the ultimate perspective in terms of the form of the beautiful, you're led to this source of all the beauty that we encounter, uh, which is itself beauty imperishably and without defect. And it has all the other uh, features that um, the forms have on this classic middle platonic view, this, this view from Plato's middle dialogues. Um, so, what we're being presented with here is a picture on which all erotic longing um, points ultimately to, orients us towards this union with the beautiful, this yeah. p- union with the forms more generally, which is everlasting. Yeah. The question just is whether we'll learn to see that about ourselves, whether we'll come to that knowledge about what our longing really is and what it really points us towards. And therein lies the drama of eros and education that we're seeing on display in these figures and especially between Socrates and Alcibiades.
0: Marcus, two more questions. One specifically about the dialogue, the final question about what this dialogue means to you. But first, at the end of the dialogue, Socrates remarks that the tragic poet should also be able to write comedy and vice versa. His audience at this point is limited to just those two, the tragic poet, Agathon, and the comic, Aristophanes. What does he mean by this? And why might this dialogue, speeches on love, conclude with this significant observation about tragedy and comedy?
1: Yes. Um, So notice that The dialogue itself has both comic and tragic elements on full display that do a lot of the work contributing to what makes this dialogue in particular such a great read. Um, I've already talked about how funny a lot of the details in Aristophanes' speech are. Aristophanes having the hiccups, um, the different comic moments as Socrates is first arriving at the party. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are tragic elements too. I I was just talking about... um, Alcibiades' own promising status and Socrates' attempts to bring him on board to the pursuit of wisdom and virtue and how badly that ends up going. So the dialogue itself uh, seems very carefully wrought to bring in both comic and tragic elements. Um, And so I have always favored the reading on which that remark, that uh, the consummate form of drama combines both elements tragic and and comic elements is plato's indirect way of portraying his own practice the dialogue and plato more generally as uniting in the philosophical dialogue as plato writes it the best of tragedy and comedy yeah and at the end the comic
0: poet falls asleep then the tragic poet and the philosopher goes about his business Um, one last question you said to me before we recorded, just in, in personal conversations, that this is your favorite dialogue. Why, why is that?
1: What does this dialogue mean to you? It's one of my very favorite dialogues, maybe indeed my favorite. And um, more specifically, it's since I was one of the first dialogues I read, it's it's gone a long way towards forming my own understanding of of Plato's Socrates. Mm. And if Plato's to be trusted, Socrates the man himself. Um, this picture we get of Socrates as the erotic in the very particular sense that Plato develops here, uh, the one who sees his own lack of wisdom and his own lack of beauty and so is set on the path in pursuing beauty and wisdom in the philosophical way, that it seems to me um, dovetails very neatly with how Socrates describes himself in the Apology. He knows that he knows nothing. He recognizes and feels the absence of wisdom in himself. And he sees his task politically, if you like, his contribution to the community is to awaken others to their own lack of wisdom and Mm. virtue. Uh, We might say beauty uh, as well, um, sticking with the symposium. He's meant to communicate this to others, not to hand wisdom to them, as Agathon puts it at the start of the dialogue, uh, but to get them to notice this about themselves. And again, if we take the the details in Diotima's speech and if we get the details of the Pythian Oracle at Delphi, seriously in the Apology, um, we see this as connecting to Socrates as a kind of figure given a divine mission. Wisdom being the provenance of the gods, not something for us mortals, not in this life anyway, um, but something that we ought to be pursuing and seeking to approximate to the best of our ability in the way that Socrates... Um, himself portrays. Yeah.
0: Marcus, it is always such a pleasure talking with you. I feel guilty that I had to confine our discussion of one of your favorite dialogues, and re- I've come I've come around to your view that this is actually a very rich dialogue, as the, as they all are. So shame on me for taking so long to get to it. But thank you so much for talking through it with us today, and I'm looking forward to having you back again soon. Always a joy, Nina. Thanks so much. There you have it, Madisonians. Our journey through select platonic dialogues continues with the great Marcus Gibson. As you probably noticed, we're experimenting with a Wednesday release this week as we continue to explore ways to get Madison's notes to more and more listeners. Of course, that's something you can help us with by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and sharing the podcast with friends and family. Thank you for all of your support, and we hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes.